We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On yesterday's show, I talked about the debate over whether or not there's a gay gene, whether or not you're born that way, and whether or not it even makes a difference if you are. On today's show, I'm going to feature a give and take, a Q&A between myself and a pastor. It's pretty aggressive, where he's arguing for the born that way position. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Again, thank you for listening to the show. I really appreciate all of you who do, especially those who are subscribers to The Rebellion, via patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. That's patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. Thank you to all of you who subscribe on a monthly basis. And help us out in a significant way, quite frankly, in paying the monthly light bill. I appreciate that. That's what makes this worthwhile. I'm very grateful to, uh, to all of you, for all of you. Thank you. I'm also very grateful for the routine listeners on KOKL Radio who t- tune in live every Monday through Friday morning and listen to the show. Thank you. And thank you to Brooks Brewer, the owner of KOKL, for putting this whole thing together. He's the one who called me up a couple years ago and said, hey, do you want your own show? And I said, absolutely. The only terms I had was uh, that you not censor me. Let me say what I want to say. And Brooks has never said one word about, hey, rein it back, don't say that. You, you, uh, you, you stepped over the line. Never got anything like that out of Brooks. And I'm very grateful. So thanks to KOKL Radio and thank you to the podcast listeners who also subscribe to The Rebellion. And obviously, if you want to join that team, you know how to do so. Go to patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. And again, more housekeeping today. If you want to buy my books, go to my website. That's dreverettpiper.com. If you want to schedule me to speak at your church or your political event or anything else for that matter, you can uh, click on the tab on my website, the menu tab, menu bar, and it gives you uh, an option for scheduling me to speak. If you want back issues of my weekly column with the Washington Times, you can find that uh, on my website also. Again, on the menu bar, there's a tab there for Washington Times articles. So you can go find any of those that you like. They go back to the very beginning. I don't know how many hundreds of columns I've written for them. I've been doing it for a few years now. So you've got a variety of different topics, almost all topics covered there. And, and as I told you this week, I've started a new column with the Washington Times. They asked me to start writing a Dear Abby or an Ann Landers type column, a Q&A column. And the first installment of that actually came out yesterday in the Wednesday edition of the Washington Times. And uh, it's called Dear Dr. E. And then people submit questions and I try to answer them as best I can. I obviously would welcome and encourage you to submit questions to the Washington Times so that I can follow up on those in my in my weekly column there. My Dear Abby, my Ann Landers, Dear Dr. E, Dr. Laura type, uh, Dr. Phil type column. So with that as an intro for today and some housekeeping for the day, let's take an early break. And when I get back, we'll talk about this exchange with my pastor friend who disagrees with my position on the gay gene. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. 
the Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. All right, welcome back to The Rebellion. So I'm going to title this particular exchange, this particular episode, The uh, Pastor and the Gay Gene. And this is an example of a pretty aggressive give and take Q&A, a pretty aggressive disagreement within the church. Um, You know, I'm not going to say that my pastor friend is not a believer. He's definitely left of center on this particular issue, in my view. Um, Now, I do think that this this is a... tipping point for the church. If you're arguing that a given sexual behavior that is explicitly condemned in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it is, any honest reading of Scripture, it's clear that from Genesis on through to Revelation, the act of sodomy, the act of engaging in sex with somebody else of the same sex is prohibited. I mean, that's clear. It's clear in Genesis, it's clear in Leviticus, it's clear throughout the Bible, it's clear in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's clear in the book of Romans, it's clear um, in the words of Jesus. He said, have you not heard that in the beginning God created them male and female, men and women, with the intention of a man leaving his mother and father and cleaving to his wife? And then throughout the New Testament, this particular relationship of man and wife, of marriage, is is a symbol of what will take place in eternity between the bride of Christ, between Christ and his bride, and that's the church. That analogy, that symbolism is pervasive throughout the New Testament. Jesus refers to it over and over again. In the book of Revelation, you see the consummation of that marriage, where we we are taken up to heaven to be the bride of Christ, and he loves us as a faithful and committed husband loves his wife. Okay? The church is pure. It's, it's faithful. It's uncompromised. And likewise, the husband is loyal, faithful, and committed. I mean, these are, these are pictures of what eternity is like, and God gives us marriage as a hint of that here on this earth. This is clear. This is biblical. Now, you may say, well, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I've heard a different interpretation of that. Well, then why does Paul talk about uh, homosexuality, same-sex marriage? Excuse me, not same-sex marriage. They never talk about that. Same-sex engagement, behavior, as being uh, debauched, deplorable, verboten, worthy of condemnation and judgment. In fact, it's very clear in the writings of Paul, in the writings of Jude, in the writings of Peter. It's not just Paul, it's Peter and Jude, likewise, that condemned this. Both Peter and Jude, in their epistles, refer to Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's judgment on the immoral. It's not about hospitality, if some liberal theologian has told you that. No, it's not about hospitality. It's not that the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't welcome the sojourner among them, Uh, graciously, with hospitality. No, that's not what was condemned. What was condemned was the debauchery, the debased attitude, the desire to engage in prohibited sexual activity and behavior. That's what was condemned, and that's what was judged. Romans, the book of Romans written by Paul, doubles down on it. Peter, in his epistles, he doubles down on it. And Jude does likewise. And then Revelation, we're told that outside are the dogs, those who practice what? Homosexuality, sexual immorality, pornea. Outside are the dogs. It's pretty clear, okay? So Jesus himself judges this behavior. And any argument to the contrary is just not biblically accurate. Now, if you don't believe in the Bible and you want to argue that um, our referencing uh, of Scripture, of the 
Old Testament and New Testament is irrelevant because you don't buy that. You don't think that that is a basis for law and for moral decisions. If you want to argue that, then go ahead. But that's a different discussion than denying that the Bible actually says what it says. Okay, so this pastor, I assume, believes in the Bible. But this is, a, this is an exchange that was initiated by a Wesleyan pastor. So this is why I'm saying I'm not questioning his salvation. And presumably, he agrees with Wesleyan doctrine. And as I've told you before, the Wesleyan Church is one of the more conservative churches within the Methodist movement. And the Methodist movement sprung out of John and Charles Wesley in the 1700s in Great Britain. And they were challenging the Church of England to start practicing what it preached. It was a good movement. It was the right thing to do. They were saying, you may have your orthodoxy, at least you may say you believe the right things in your official doctrine, but you, the church, as well as its congregants, are not practicing that theology. You're not practicing what you preach. You, you say you believe, but you're not behaving. There was, this, there was this separation, this dichotomy between theology and behavior that you could have the right ideas in your head, your orthodoxy, but you didn't have your orthopraxy in play, your practice. So that's why John and Charles Wesley founded the Methodist movement. And the word Methodist was actually rather pejorative at the front end of the movement. It was what their, their adversaries, those that disagreed with them, called them. It was, a, it was mockery. It was name-calling. They're Methodists. Because what were John and Charles Wesley calling to do? They were calling for the methodical, obedient, habitual practice of Christianity. In other words, we're going to get together and practice the methods, the methods of holy living, that your belief should show itself in behavior. So this Wesleyan pastor presumably believes that. But this particular exchange initiated by this pastor takes issue with my previous commentary, yesterday's commentary, where it could have been titled Born to be Wild and Gay, playing off of the old rock song, Born to be Wild, I say Born to be Gay. Are you born that way, and therefore does that excuse it? So we'll title this particular response to that that's initiated by my Wesleyan pastor friend who disagrees with me. I'm going to title it The Pastor and the Gay Gene. Okay, so here's the question. Here's the question that he brings to the table. It's lengthy, so just listen to it. Now, I'll read it to you, and then I'll read it again, so you, you, you catch exactly what he's saying. He says, he says this, There's a huge difference between the actions of a racist and the actions of a homosexual couple. And to compare the actions of a committed homosexual couple to the actions of a pedophile is disingenuous at best and fear-mongering at worst. Pedophiles are predators. Their actions harm others. However, a committed homosexual couple does not necessarily harm others. Their actions affect themselves, and that is a major distinction. The unnecessary comparison of homosexuals and pedophiles leads to attitudes in the church that are anti-Christ-like. This is not the rhetoric of love and grace. Okay, did you hear what he said? By the way, I write about this in my book, Why I'm a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas. It's my first book. There's a Q&A section at the back of that book, and I'm taking this directly from from that Q&A portion of why I'm a liberal and other conservative ideas. So let's go over the question again. This is the pastor. This is a quote. And he's contending that my commentary on the homosexual gene, where I'm arguing that if you, if you claim you're born that way, if you claim that because you're genetically predisposed to a given behavior, a given temptation, a given proclivity, and if you claim that that's your identity, you've opened up Pandora's box. And it doesn't stop anywhere. If you're going to make that claim for homosexuals, you're going to have to make that claim for every other person or every other group that wants to define him or herself by a sexual proclivity, a sexual inclination. And where does it stop? I say if it's good for homosexuals, it's going to be good for pedophiles. If it's good for pedophiles, it's going to be good for those who engage in incest. If it's good for those who engage in incest, then how about polygamy and polymory? You get my point. It doesn't stop. And you know that even today there, there's discussion about interspecies sex, that it doesn't matter what you engage in sexually because sexual behavior is not a moral discussion any longer. It's an amoral discussion. It's, it's almost like a, a decision uh, in terms of daily consumption. 
What are you going to choose for lunch? That's not a moral decision, many would argue. It just is what it is. Or what kind of recreation are you going to engage in? Are you going to play, are you going to play basketball uh, during lunch, or are you going to go jog? It's, this is not a moral decision between basketball and jogging. It just is what it is. And these people are treating the sexual decisions as being on the same moral or amoral plane. So it doesn't matter any longer. And if that's true, then there are no boundaries. There is no, there is no definition of what's appropriate and inappropriate sexually, other than they'll say, well, consent. Consent is the measurement of moral versus immoral. That's the dividing line. And I say, great. So something that was immoral five seconds ago all of a sudden becomes moral because you got somebody to consent to what you wanted to do. As long as you can coerce or convince or pretend that this is a consensual act, then all of a sudden it's good rather than evil. That's exactly where they are. And this pastor is disagreeing with me. Here's his question again, or his comment. There's a huge difference between the actions of a, ra- of a racist and the actions of a homosexual couple. And to compare the actions of a committed homosexual couple to the actions of a pedophile is disingenuous. I'll say that again. Is disingenuous at best and fear-mongering at worst. Pedophiles are predators. Their actions harm others. However, a committed homosexual couple does not necessarily harm others. Their actions affect themselves, and that is a major distinction. The unnecessary comparison of homosexuality or homosexuals and pedophiles leads to the attitudes in the church that are anti-Christ-like. This is not the rhetoric of love or grace. So he's claiming that my commentary is anti-Christ-like. Now that's a very aggressive accusation within the body of Christ. To claim somebody is anti-Christ-like is very close to claiming that they're aligning themselves with the anti-Christ. And he's doing this intentionally. intentionally. I'll say it one more time. He is doing this intentionally. He knows exactly what he's saying here. This is a very aggressive accusation. And he's also saying that pedophiles are predators. They harm others, but homosexuals are not necessarily harming others. And I do not agree with that at all. And I'm going to point out to you why. And here it is. This is my answer. If homosexual behavior is a sin as it is, is described in Leviticus and then again in the epistles of Paul, as well as implicitly by Christ himself in Revelation, as well as by Jude and Peter. So I'm saying to my pastor friend, a fellow believer, a fellow Wesleyan, if homosexual behavior is a sin, as it's described in the Bible, from Leviticus to Romans to Jude to Peter to Revelation, if it's a sin, then I'm not sure there is a huge difference between it and other sins like racism, hatred, anger, or any other form of sexual sin like pedophilia, adultery, uh, polygamy, polymory, uh, incest, etc. I don't think it is different. I don't think it is a different moral discussion. I don't think it is on a different moral plane than racism, hatred, anger, pedophilia, adultery, or whatnot. They're all in the same uh, category of sin. Why is he saying there's a difference? And I say this to him, you seem to be attempting to draw a distinction between sexual sin that harms others, quote-unquote, I'm using his language here, and a sexual sin that doesn't. Well, I'm not sure I can agree (laughs) with his epistemology or ontology. Now, remember what epistemology and ontology is. Epistemology is how do you know, and ontology is what is real. So, is this thing real, okay, that we're talking about? Is there reality here? Is there an ontological reality about what we're debating and discussing? And if so, how do you know it? How do you know what's real epistemologically? Okay, so I don't agree with his epistemology or his ontology on this one. And I also have to question his review of Scripture. So I'm saying, how do you know that this doesn't harm others? Is your, is your statement a real statement? Is this a factual statement ontologically that there's a distinction between homosexuality and pedophilia or racism or hatred or anger? Is there a distinction here? Is there a real distinction ontologically? And if so, how do you know it? Because you're not using scripture anymore to evaluate this and to bring understanding and knowledge to the discussion. You're using something else, and I'd like to know what it is. So I'm saying I'm not sure I agree with your epistemology or ontology on this one, and I also have to question your review of Scripture. So theologically, I don't know where you're going with this either. 
because you seem to be playing loose and free with the Bible right now. And the reason I'm saying that is Jesus Christ, as well as Paul and Peter and Jude, make it clear that sexual sin, any sexual sin, I want to be very clear on this, any sexual sin, pornea, that's the word that is almost always used in the New Testament to describe sexual sin, whether it be homosexual or heterosexual sin. And what is sin within the sexual category? Anything outside the context of marital commitment, male-female, husband-wife commitment, anything outside of that context, the New Testament, Peter, Paul, Jude, Jesus, make it clear it's wrong. It's sin. You shouldn't be engaged in it. Sorry, if you think that's too restrictive and too prudish and too Christian, too old guard, too old school, I'm sorry. That's what the Bible says. So argue with it. Don't argue with me. Okay? Christ, Paul, Peter, Jude, everybody in the New Testament is making it clear. And frankly, it's in the Old Testament too. And if you say, well, what about Solomon and all of his concubines and wives? That's a descriptive passage of literature. It's not prescriptive. And what I mean by that, it describes what actually was taking place. It never prescribes that that's what you should do. And the Old Testament is replete with this stuff. A lot of the concerns that you have with the Old Testament... If you understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive literature, you'll put 99% of your concerns to rest. The Bible is accurate. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's true. But you need to understand that a lot of the stuff that's being uh, described in Scripture is not being prescribed as a way for us to live necessarily. So read the Bible as it is written, as literature. And sometimes it's descriptive, sometimes it's prescriptive, sometimes it's proscriptive. Proscriptive meaning you can't do it. And sometimes it's poetry, poetry. sometimes it's prose. For example, the Song of Solomon is a poem. We know this. Sometimes there are proverbs. Okay, there's a difference between a proverb and prose. Okay, so we've got to read the Bible not as if it's... Um, willy-nilly, untrue, and it's subject to construct, uh, social constructional change. No, that's not the point. The point is, as you read any book, you read it in context. You read a novel in the context of it being a novel. You read a book of poetry in the context of understanding its poetry. It doesn't make either one of them less true. You read prescriptive literature because it's telling you what to do. You read a descriptive passage in history and you know it's describing what took place, it isn't necessarily elevating that behavior as exemplary. Do you understand what I'm saying here? So there's a difference, okay, theologically, scripturally, and I also think his ontology, this pastor's ontology and epistemology is a little squirrely. So I have to question these things. And again, I'm going to make it clear. Christ and Paul both make it very, very clear that, a sexu that sexual sin, any sin, is not only a compromise of your own body, but also the compromise of another's, okay? Any sexual sin is a compromise not only of your body, but of someone else's. And therefore, any sexual sin, any, does harm others. So his claim that, that homosexual marriages don't harm others that's crazy talk. Of course it does. First of all, the Bible says it's sin. Sin not only harms yourself, it harms others. And you could argue, well, it only harms one other person, but you've got to agree that it is harming the other person because you're engaged in something you shouldn't do. And therefore, it's harmful not only to yourself, but, the, but to the people that you're involving in that same sin. I, I'm just stunned that this pastor doesn't get that. So I'm going to say it again. Jesus, as well as Paul, make it very clear that sexual sin, any sexual sin, is not only a compromise of your own body, but also the compromise of another's. And therefore, therefore, all sexual sin harms others. So this claim that there is a major distinction between homosexual sin and other forms of sexual sin, this falls just a bit short. Okay, just a bit short in my view. And, and I've also got to disagree with this guy's point that pedophilia is by definition any more predatory than any other homosexual or heterosexual sin, okay? I, I'm going to argue this very, very clearly here. I think I've already said it, but I'm going to say it one more time. All, 
and I'm capitalizing this right now, all, A-L-L, sexual sin, is selfish. All of it. I don't care what it is. All of it's selfish, and therefore, by definition, it's predatory. All sexual sin seeks to use another person for one's own fulfillment and, satisfa- and satisfaction. I, argue differently with me. Why do you not restrain yourself to live within the boundaries of heterosexual marriage? Why? Because you want to satisfy it. You want to satiate your sexual drive. I'm sorry. That's a fact. And therefore, it's selfish and it's sinful. And I think that's probably one of the basic reasons why God tells us not to engage in it. It's selfish. It all, all sexual sin, seeks to use someone else, someone else's body for your own fulfillment and satisfaction. And therefore, I'd argue all of it, praise, to use this guy's language, on another for the sake of self. All right. Now, this, this language of unchristlike. obviously, I take issue with that. I cannot agree. I cannot agree that it's unchristlike or anti-Christ-like, to be more specific. That is his language. Anti-Christ? Really? It's akin to being the Antichrist to point out that it's harmful to compromise the basic standards of personal and social health? Is Really? Is that being the Antichrist? To remain silent while others hurt themselves does not seem to be all that loving to me. I get, I'm sick and tired of my pastor friends in the evangelical community saying this isn't consistent with love and grace. It is not loving to sit back and let somebody else hurt themselves. Well, how are they hurting themselves, you say? They get diseases. I've said it before on this show. You have over 25% of millennial age women that now are carrying a sexually transmitted disease. That's a fact. A quarter of millennials, and it's going to get worse in Gen Zers and the subsequent generations, a quarter of them, 25% of the women, are now carrying a STD, and their bodies have been compromised as a result of that. Many of them are now infertile. They won't be able to bear children. How is it loving to ignore that? How about other STDs? How about HIV? How about AIDS? How about any syphilis, etc., any sexually transmitted disease? gonorrhea, herpes. How is it loving to sit back and tell people, go at it, have at it, engage in that behavior, don't worry about the fact that it's making you sick? Oh, well, they can engage in safe sex. Well, it doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem to be all that safe, does it? In light of the explosion, the epidemic, if not pandemic, of STDs around the world, and the consequences to people. Oh, there are drugs so that they don't die, sure, but their bodies are compromised as a result of it. So claiming that that's an anti-Christ-like attitude to want to protect people from getting sick and harming their bodies and someone else's, I just can't go there. To remain silent while they hurt themselves does not seem to be all that loving to me. And I would argue to the contrary, that this silence in the face of such evil is akin to enabling people to continue to live a deceptive life a life that is harmful to themselves, their bodies, their families, and their culture, and somebody else's body, families, and culture. The consequences to all these ideas and the consequences of libertine sexuality are as obvious as the sunrise, and the consequences are really quite ugly. So, no, I can't go there. This argument that this is anti-Christ-like, to point these truths out that I've just covered in this show, it's crazy talk. And to claim that somehow a fellow Christian is in the anti-Christ camp by arguing that we can't open up Pandora's box in sexual nihilism and somehow talk about homosexual sin, even if it's monogamous and just between two people, is somehow different than other sins and it's less predatory less harmful to the individual, less harmful to the others that are engaged in that activity, and less harmful to the church and to culture, it's a lie. That's not helpful. And to tell that lie, and to enable people to live within that lie, is not loving. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.